Welcome to NLBMDA's Lumber Talks podcast. I'm Frank Moore, NLBMDA's Regulatory Counsel. Today I'm joined by Ben Gann, our Vice President for Political and Legislative Affairs. Hey Ben. Hello Frank. Today we're going to take a look at EPA's lead rule, more formally known as the Lead Renovation Repair and Painting Rule. Ben is going to give us an overview touch on the inefficiencies of how it's been rolled out and where EPA is going with it at this point. And we'll talk about what NLBMDA is doing to get the rule where it needs to be. Thanks for joining for starters, Ben, remind us what the EPA-led rule is. Sure. So for residential housing built before 1978, so the, the reason 1978 is lead paint stopping manufactured for uh, residential use at the end of 1977, and it requires remodelers working on those homes built 1977 or earlier to do a variety of, of compliance measures such as putting down plastic tarps, uh, using HEPA vacs to take the paint off so we're not getting the dust in the HVAC system or on the floor. And that goes if you're disturbing more than six square feet on the interior or if you're doing any window replacement project. I know there's an issue with the test kit. Talk to us about that. Right. Most people will be familiar with the two uh, commercially available test kits on the market. So there are two manufacturers, 3M and DLED, that have test kits that you can buy at your local home improvement store. Uh, the state of Massachusetts also has one, but that's only for use in the state of Massachusetts. And those EPA-approved test kits are supposed to be able to detect whether lead paint is present and if you need to do these additional worksite practices. The problem is for houses, especially between 1960 and 1977, the test kits are essentially, um, don't, they give you many false positives. So depending upon the type of surface you're testing, the age of the home, uh, most of the tests that EPA has done show um, a response rate anywhere between 24% and even up to like past 80%. The, the standard in the rule says that that false positive rate should be 10% or less. Okay, all right. So they're not working. They're not working, and, we, and EPA has acknowledged that they don't work, but they have also not indicated that they're willing to do something about it. There's been talk over the years of, hey, this, there are some other companies that have looked at the technology, but there doesn't seem there's, that anything is imminent. And it's important to remember that when this rule was enacted, it was premised on the fact that there would be a test kit that met the standard. Okay. So I know there is also an issue with the so-called opt-out provision and uh, the way the rule was amended and the opt-out provision that was in was removed. So talk to us about sure. that. Sure. When the rule originally took effect, it had what we call an opt-out provision. So uh, the rule is there to protect pregnant women and children age six and younger from lead exposure. So if you have those populations, pregnant woman, ch child six years and un under, the rule always applies regardless of whether the home, you know, regardless. The, the opt-out provision was there, so if you didn't have those protected groups, you could opt out. So the, the remodeler would give you a, a renovate right pamphlet saying, this is what we do as part of the RRP rule. Do you want to do this? As a homeowner, if I don't 
you know, maybe I'm a retired couple. I own my house outright. I've lived here 30 years. I'm in perfect health. I don't want to do this. Well, what happened is two weeks after the rule took effect, there was a settlement agreement. So this is part of a court case. And so as part of the EPA settlement agreement with the environmental groups who brought the suit is it removed the opt-out provision. And then it also started the process for rulemaking to expand the rule of public and commercial buildings. Okay. There is no opt-out provision at this point. Correct. And there hasn't been for most of the time the rule has been in place, maybe the first three months. So the, the court case was two weeks after the rule took effect, and then it was removed in July of that year. So you're talking a period of about three months where it was actually in place. Okay. So lead rule, ineffective test kits, the opt-out provision, that's been removed. Talk to us about what EPA is looking to do at this point. Uh, I mentioned it a moment ago, but in terms of expansion of the rule. So it's important to point out that not just uh, owner-occupied housing, but also child-occupied facilities are already subject to this residential rule. But what EPA, in addition to that, is looking to do is expand it to public and commercial structures. So again, as I mentioned before, there's the settlement agreement, and as part of that settlement agreement, they agreed that they would look to expand the public and to regulate public and commercial spaces. There's two challenges with that. Uh, one is it, uh, under the Toxic Substances Control Act, which, is, which this rule falls under, if EPA wants to regulate public and commercial buildings, they need to identify a lead hazard. They have not done that yet. And so what we've been doing with EPA, and we've met with EPA in the last two months on this, is just reminding them, hey, if you want to move forward with this, you, have got, you must identify a lead hazard. In addition to that, one of the things we've, we've mentioned is, look, there are a lot of different kinds of public and commercial buildings, right? A warehouse is different than a retail location. It's different right. than a hospital. And so what is what might be a lead hazard, there might, there might be a lead hazard in one setting. There might not be in a different setting. And there does need to be some nuance, and there does need to be some thinking with regard to that. EPA has said, because we, when we talked to them most recently about this, that this is a rule that they're probably looking to start on in 2019. Okay. Nothing on paper yet, then? No, uh, no, but we, we have been given verbal indication uh, from leadership within EPA that this is something probably as soon as next year that okay. they're looking at. The okay. Start the process. We wouldn't see a final rule next year, but we might see the beginning of the process next right. year. Right. And that's related to expanding the rules. So what modifications have they made over the years that might be relevant to the audience? Sure. EPA has done some modest uh, changes to the rule over time. So when the rule first took effect, there was this dust swipe requirement where after you did all of the renovation, you had to do a post-work test to see if dust was still present. Um, just given the, the inaccuracies of the test kits, they removed that fairly early on in the process. In addition, uh, a few years ago, they modified the criteria for recertification, so uh, for a, a remodeler. So if you're already certified, under the old requirement, you always had to do this hands-on component, two-hour hands-on component, in addition to the six hours of online training. What EPA has said is, look, um, if you want to just recertify, you can just do the six hours of online. That'll be good for three years. But then after that three-year period, you'd have to still come back and do both the online only 
the online and the hands-on part portion, so the full eight hours to get your next recertification. You've mentioned one federal court case, but is, isn't there a federal court case that could mean further changes to the rule? Sure, so it's not specific to um, this RRP rule, okay. but it, it probably will affect the RRP rule. So there was a court case out in California in December, and it's part of a 2012 decision by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that lowered the lead hazard standard from 10 micrograms per deciliter to five micrograms per deciliter. So EPA has still been using the 10 micrograms per deciliter standard. And what the court is, is saying to EPA is, look, you have to now use this lower five micrograms per deciliter standard. And then based on that, look at the programs you have in place and see if changes need to be made to the regulations to comply with this lower standard for what constitutes a, uh, or higher standard, depending on how you look at right, it, so for what constitutes a lead hazard. And so that could have repercussions all the way back to the beginning of this conversation about just the, the basic lead rule, and you're still going to be using ineffective test kits? That's correct. So what EPA has argued is not that the test kits are ineffective, but that they're too sensitive, okay. uh, which is a funny argument. but. Again, as we pointed out to them on numerous occasions, is that look, the rule was predicated on two things that could cost them, both a, a, a test kit that you could buy at a local home improvement store that worked, and that, that there was an opt-out, there was an element of consumer choice here. So if you were not part of those protected groups, because we all understand what the intent of the rule is, but if you're not in those, that core category of folks, again, pregnant woman, child under six, that you didn't have to do necessarily all these additional work site practices, understanding that there are already rules in place like lead disclosure when you buy a house, you know, right. things like that. All right, so what else is happening to the rule or with the rule that we need to know about? Well, obviously we mentioned that there's uh, a process underway to both expand, uh, perhaps expand the role of the public and commercial spaces. Uh, most recently, EPA, EPA released a Section 610 report, so this was required under the, the Regulatory Flexibility Act. So what that is, is it requires regulations um, of a significant cost that affects small businesses that every 10 years they have to put out a report. So this is what the Section 610 report is. Not surprisingly, it wasn't anything new to us. There wasn't anything particularly helpful for our efforts to make the rule a little bit more workable. Uh, essentially what EPA said was, look, we're complying with the rule. Lead is, uh, is very dangerous and, and has profound effects on children. So whatever we're doing here is in keeping with that idea. Uh, one of the things we've pointed out is many of the rules that have been put in place over the years, not just the RRP rule, but sort of related things that HUD does in regulating public and housing. And the RRP is the lead rule. Right, right. so yeah, the yeah. lead rule, the EPA lead rule. Yeah. So obviously the EPA lead rule has had a positive impact, but if you look at what HUD does in public housing, um, over time what's happened is lead exposure rates have decreased dramatically in children. So some one of the challenges we have is as we get, as the number of children who have um, serious lead exposure is reduced every year, Obviously, the types of um, changes that you need to be need to make to have any type of impact are going to be much more incremental than they would be if 
right. say. Like back in the early 90s, if you look at a place like Baltimore, which had like it, it, incredibly high incident rates of lead exposure in children for public housing. Let's talk about what NLBMDA is doing uh, to make some further changes to the rule, what those changes might be, sure. what our vision of the rule might be. So I think, first of all, we've been working with Congress, most notably with uh, Kevin Kramer from North Dakota, Congressman from North Dakota. Uh, he sent a letter to EPA asking about some of the things we've been asking about over the years regarding test kits, regarding opt-out. In addition to that, we're working with the Small Business Administration's Office of Advocacy to respond to EPA Section 610 report. Obviously, we feel like EPA sort of glossed over the fact that the rule was premised on a workable test kit and an opt-out provision. And so what the SBA Office of Advocacy is trying to do is say, wait a minute, these things are supposed to be and they're not. Why don't you feel you need to do anything? And I think it would also come back to the point when this rule was first promulgated, the data used to justify the costs and benefits of the rule, they took data from only nine remodeling firms. So there are over 27,000 remodeling firms across the country. They took it from nine. One of the things we've said to them repeatedly is, look, you need a statistically significant sample. That would maybe be a few hundred, but even if they took 200, that would be a step in the right direction. I think would also give them a better idea of what the true costs are regarding implementation and compliance with the rule. So those are some of the things we're working on. I think right now, obviously, there is a legislative path. We're working with the SBA Office of Advocacy. In terms of our vision for the rule, I think you have to look at the segments of target housing. So anything built before 1940, we presume, has lead in it. Says it's over 90% of homes built before 1940 have lead. For homes built between 1940 and 1959, the incident rate is still 67%. So I don't think we're really arguing about that pre-1960 housing. The only thing we've really, what we've tried to focus on is that housing built between 1960 and 1977. So for that age of housing, target housing stock, the incident rate of lead is uh, for lead paint is 24%. And again, keep in mind, lead paint was stopped being manufactured for interior use in 60, continued to be used for exterior use at that point. So we do feel as though, well, what if we did something like included the opt-out provision for people living in these homes, again, without a pregnant woman or a child under six, in this 60 to 77 block, get, you know, and not worry so much about, okay, let's, let's concede the point on the pre-60 housing. So that's one of the things. EPA hasn't exactly been amenable to that suggestion. Uh, what they've said is, look, uh, lead is a serious issue, and so really any amount is too much, and so it doesn't really matter if it's between 60 and 77, these rules should still apply. But that's one of the solutions we put on the table. We think there's a rationale behind it, and uh, it would be a path forward. Yeah, and, and, and if you look at the enforcement rate um, that EPA is doing, they're not enforcing this much. So one of our criticisms has been on the enforcement side. Uh, to the extent they have been doing enforcement, it's been on paperwork violations. It hasn't been on worksite practices. So uh, one of the things we're trying to do with the rule is say, look, we know you don't have the staff to police over 80 million, you know, close to 80 million homes, so why don't we make tailor this rule to the most serious home, right, the homes with, we, we know with pretty much 100% certainty that there's lead in them. Let's not focus so much on the homes that 
maybe or maybe not have lead paint. And if, even if they do, it's probably on the exterior anyway. Let's focus and, and target enforcement that way. Let's focus on worksite practices. Let's not focus on paperwork violations. Those are things we're trying to get APA to do. Obviously, um, it continues to be a struggle with, with the agency in terms of trying to make some movements. Do I think what is would be a more workable rule both for uh, the remodeling industry, but also for them in terms of enforcement. Well, thank you, Ben, and thank you for listening. I hope this has given everyone a better understanding of the lead rule. It certainly helped me. This has been Frank Moore and Ben Gann at Lumber Talks, NLBMDA's public policy podcast. Make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, be safe.